I had a very interesting thing happen to me on Friday night. Um, it was in sometime in the 7 o'clock hour. <clears throat> Becky decided there was a few things we needed from the grocery store, you know, life's essentials, cat food, stuff like that. And so um, it had been a study day for me, and uh, I had uh, not gone, how do I say this? I had not gone to a lot of effort to look stunning that day, okay? <laughs> the truth is I was in a jogging suit that was tired, to say the least, and uh, <clears throat> looking pretty uh, ragged and not very uh, impressive at all, not that I ever am, but I, so I go, I go to the grocery store, and I'm praying all the way there, Lord, don't let me run into any church people at the grocery store, not for my sake, I don't care, but for their sake, and certainly that they wouldn't, if somebody they want to introduce me to, this is my pastor, really? So, <clears throat> and of course, you know how that works, right? So I go to the grocery store, I get my few items, I put them on the, um, on the thing for the checker to, you know, check them out, and I had one of those little small, short baskets, and I knew I wasn't going to need it to get my groceries out, it wasn't that many, so I decided while they're checking me out, I would take the basket and go put it back where the baskets go. And as I'm walking past the front door, because the baskets are on the other side, I'm just aware that the door is open, and in walks a lady... Um, very nice lady, probably, I don't know, late 40s, something like that. And so I'm just kind of aware that a, a person is there, and she went, oh, like this. And I'm thinking, I know I look bad, but man, that's a bit of an overreaction, you know. <clears throat> and I don't think I've ever seen this lady before, ever in my life. She turns white as a sheet, and then she puts her hands to her mouth, like this. And I don't know what else to say. I didn't want to walk in front. I was going to let her walk in front of me and be a gentleman, you know. And I, the only thing I knew to say is, would, would you like this basket? You know, I, I mean, I've wiped it down. It's the flu season. I've wiped it down. Here, you can have this basket. And she looked at me and she said, you're Dan Smith. Everything in me wanted to go. <laughs> but I said, guilty. I said, yes, yes, ma'am, I am. <clears throat> And here's what she said. She said, you probably won't remember me. And I didn't say anything. That, that's correct. And, <clears throat> but she said, I attended Bethesda about 20, 25 years ago. And she said, haven't thought of you in a long time, which was an encouragement. <laughs> and then she said, but I have spent a big part of this day trying to find you. She said, I have tried to figure out how to... Um, either email you or find someone who would have your phone number or get in touch with you. And I finally just sort of gave up, and here I have walked into the store, and there you are. And I want to say, yes, there I am in all of my glory <clears throat> and beauty. And so <clears throat> I said, so why, why were you looking for me? And she said, um, <clears throat> She said, well, um, she said, in all honesty, um, I haven't been to Bethesda in a long, long time. And she said, in the last few months, I have walked through the deepest, darkest valley of my life. And she said, now this is standing at the front door of the grocery store. And she said, I've walked through the deepest, darkest valley of my life. And she said, I just, I have been trying to think how I could get a hold of you just to thank you because the only thing that has gotten me through the darkest nights of my life have been the songs that you taught the church back then. 
and I thought, oh my goodness. <clears throat> and then she referenced uh, Dennis Jernigan, and many of you will remember Dennis. And so she's got a hold of my arm because she's kind of trembling at this moment at this, you know, I'm sure it was my stunning appearance that probably did it. <clears throat> and so while she was standing there, and because she referenced Dennis and she talked about, I could not help, but I just sort of, back there in the grocery store I went, when the night is falling and the day is done, I can hear you calling, come and I will come while you sing over me. She started crying. I said, ma'am, I don't know what you've, what you've gone through. I just know this, that Jesus is the answer to whatever it is that you have going on. And so, you know, about that time, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I didn't even get her name. It was, it was really very quick. About that time, I felt a tap on my shoulder, and it's the lady with my sacks of groceries <laughs> with the attitude, like, here. And so <clears throat> I get my, my sacks in my hand, and I, I, I said, it's nice to see you. I wish you well. And so I went out the door, and I get the sacks in the uh, back of the car, and I'm just ready to get in the driver's seat. And I, this could not have been 90 seconds later. And I, <clears throat> I hear, Pastor Dan, Pastor Dan. And it's that lady. She's coming after me again. And she said, and she, only I see she's got something in her hand. She had spent those 90 seconds going to the flower shop, and she bought the largest vase vase of fresh-cut flowers, a huge bouquet of flowers. And she said, I came here to get this for someone else, but I want you and Becky to have it. And so I said, oh, ma'am, you know, thank you. And I had told her earlier, I said, don't thank me. I didn't write those songs. I may have arranged them, but I just taught them to the church. And I, but I said, but let me thank you for, for this. So I get the flowers, you know, in the car in the seat next to me, and thank God the drive home wasn't too, too far. But I'm thinking the way home, and how am I going to explain this to Becky? Because she just sent me for cat food, you know. And whatever else. And, and, I, and I come home. So here's what struck me. So I, I leave the grocery, get home, leave the groceries in the car, and I walk in, literally this large vase full of gorgeous fresh cut flowers. And I walk in with this. And I walk in, of course, and it's Friday night, and, you know, and she was kind of sitting at the counter, and she looked at me like, what? What is that? And I did what every, any man would do. I said, happy Valentine's Day. No, I didn't. I didn't. <clears throat> I wanted to, but I didn't. I didn't do that. But it reminded me of how often I have been encouraged by a song. How many of you have ever been encouraged by a song? <clears throat> of course, many of you know that just yesterday we conducted the funeral service for our beloved brother, Jeff Jeffess. Is Carolyn in church today? Hey, Carolyn, bless you. Hey, Calvin. Um, I'm going to miss Jeff. <clears throat> he loved this church. He loved this music ministry. And I even believe he loved his pastor. And um, it was one day this week that <clears throat> Carolyn came to, with her daughter to my office for us to plan the service together. And whatever else she brought... Um, she brought with her, she had this, a bunch of papers, like about a half a dozen pieces, of, you know, full size, eight and a half by 11 
pages with uh, handwritten on it. Jeff had handwritten over, obviously, quite a period of time, his favorite songs. So this was his song list that he kept. It's pages and pages and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of song titles. And, and so she handed that to me, and I'll, you know, we, I, I worked through that list to select, help her select some things that we, um, that we used in, in the service. And then I, I took those a copy of those pages home with me to kind of peruse and look them over. And I got to tell you, when I, when I saw it, the list, I immediately had this internal reaction because, you know, Jeff was here in the 80s and 90s and so vibrantly active in the music ministry here, and he sang those songs, and, and, and I saw titles I hadn't seen in a long, long, long time. But it took me back to our worship experiences together as a church in the 80s and 90s. And, and I thought, oh, my goodness. And I had a real kind of an emotional flashback with, with, with the whole thing. And, you know, it was interesting that Jeff had kept that list. He also played the piano. I'm not sure everybody knew that. And, and we, um, it just made me want to weep to, to, to look at the list because it was so significant to me. So I had the list. I took it home with me. And I'm not sure he had this song on the list, but so many of the songs that I looked at, as I would go down them one at a time, it would make me think of others, or songs that I used that with another song in, 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 a, in a worship set. And it so took me back over that period of time. You see, the era of praise and worship music was really in its infancy uh, when Becky and I got here in 1932. And... Um, one of the things that was happening is we were being introduced, the church, the church, was being introduced to the idea of Scripture being uh, put to music. Now, in my days in the church before that, we sang gospel songs and hymns, and, but we hadn't specifically sung, hadn't had writers take actual Scripture verses and, and put them to music. Much of it came from New Zealand, uh, some from Australia, and it found its way to, you know, to the United States. Well, we sang lots of Scripture songs to music around here, and to us, it was glorious. One of the songs written to Scripture that we sang for quite a while is one that you may remember. It's from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 17. And as I thought about it, I remember we actually had two different versions that we sang of this song. We had a fast version and a slow version. And the verse is this, Ah, Lord God, behold, Thou hast made the heavens and the earth. By Thy great power and outstretched arm, there is nothing too hard for thee. Anybody in the room remember that song at all? Some of you do? Okay, good. This song was actually a prayer of Jeremiah, that I, and I want to just, if you'll give me just a few minutes, I want to unpack it for you this morning. It's the prayer of a man who's in the midst of one of the most difficult situations anybody could possibly imagine. And so in the midst of difficulty, lots of it, and I'm going to go over a bit of that, this prayer comes out of him in this 17th verse of the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah, and it's so powerful, and, and, and I want you and I to find encouragement in a song this morning, and that's what this is about. Because I have a sister and a brother-in-law uh, who spent their, basically retired now, but they've spent their adult lives in real estate in the St. Louis area, all their lives, um, I've learned a couple of important real estate phrases. And one is, they say that when it comes to selling a piece of property, there's really only three things that matter. Do you know what they are? 
You got it. Location. The second is location. And the third is location. Well, there's another phrase that I learned from them, and it's the phrase that you should be paying attention to when you're buying a piece of property. And it's the three S's that you need close uh, and available to this property that you're considering. You really, you really shouldn't consider a piece of property unless it has these three S's. And they are, you have to buy for the schools, you buy for the safety, and you buy for the shopping. Can I get an amen from the ladies in the house today? You need to consider those three S's when you're buying a piece of property. Well, here's this story in Jeremiah 32 where this little song comes from that I've referenced, where what we see is that Jeremiah buys a piece of property and none of the three S's are anywhere to be found near his purchase. Any real estate agent today would have probably even discouraged him from buying it or told him he was out of his mind. But how many know, and here's what I, want you to, when I, what I want to ask you, how many in the room today have walked with God long enough to know that sometimes, I'm saying sometimes, when it sounds crazy, it just might be God. How many know that's true? Well, that's exactly where Jeremiah is in Jeremiah 32 in this simple little passage. Because it's the story where Nebuchadnezzar, who we're familiar with from the book of Daniel, he's just finished, uh, Brother Neb has just finished the third and final raid on Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us in 2 Kings that he has literally burned Jerusalem to the ground. He has left only the poorest of the poor. He's ravaged the city. He's taken all of the talented and creative and skilled people and taken all the well-abled men, and he's deported them all to Babylon. Jer and so, here, so here's the deal. That's the condition of Jerusalem. Jeremiah himself is stuck in jail for repeatedly giving the same prophecy. Read about it in Jeremiah 32. And yet, while he is there in jail, God tells him to do something that seems absolutely insane, and this is what God tells him, Jeremiah 32. At that time, when he was in jail, the Lord sent a message, and he said, your cousin, Hanamel, son of Shalom, will come and say to you, buy my field at Anathoth. By law, you have the right to buy it before it is offered to anyone else. And let, let me just give a little background to that. Hanamel was following the Mosaic law, which called for a person, in this case his cousin Jeremiah, to redeem or to purchase the property of a relative who was forced to sell it so that that property would not leave the family. That was in the Mosaic law. So cousin Hanamel puts pressure on his cousin Jeremiah, telling him it is both your right and a little pressure, and hey, bud, it's your duty to buy this property that I'm forced to sell so that it stays in the family, even though this is a ridiculous purchase. It is a foolish purchase for Jeremiah because it's an anathoth. You know what the condition of anathoth? It's under siege and it's in enemy hands. You don't buy a piece of property that is in enemy hands. The interesting thing to me here 
is that because the idea of this purchase is so foolish, God went to the trouble and bothered to forewarn Jeremiah that his cousin was going to come and make such a foolish request of him. I think that was gracious of the, of the Lord, probably so that Jeremiah wouldn't laugh him out of the room when he showed up, but instead Jeremiah would know when this happened that this was of the Lord. Verse 8, then just as the Lord had said he would, my cousin Hanamel came and he visited me in prison. And he said, have I got a deal for you? Please buy my field at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. By law, you have the right to buy it before it is offered to anyone else. Isn't that great? So buy it for yourself. And then I knew that the message, Jeremiah is saying this because it came just exactly as God said, then I knew that the message I had heard was from the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth, paying Hanamel 17 pieces of silver for it. And there's a bit of interesting study behind the price and all of that that you can do on your own. So with everything going on, and against the better judgment of everyone else, Jeremiah buys property in his own city when it has been absolutely devastated and ravaged. Buildings burned to the ground. Land has been decimated by the heathen king Nebuchadnezzar. And God speaks to Jeremiah and tells him to buy real estate in this place that has been utterly destroyed. And when you read it, you want to go, are you kidding me? Jerusalem is at its worst point right now. And then God gets even more specific with his instructions in verses 14 and 15. Listen to this. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. Take both this sealed deed and the unsealed copy and put them into a pottery jar, most versions say an earthen vessel, to preserve them for a long time. For this is what the Lord says, the God of Israel. He says, because someday people will again own property here in this land and will buy and sell houses and vineyards and fields. So God tells him to take the deed, stick it in a jar, an earthen vessel, for safekeeping. God is saying to Jeremiah, I want you to buy this property even though it looks to everyone else like this is the dumbest thing you could ever do. And I want you to trust me that one day I'm going to work a miracle on this desolated piece of property. I'm talking to somebody. I don't know who it is, but I'm talking to somebody. Now, there's some indication that Jeremiah literally takes this deed that he puts in the jar, the pottery jar, the earthen vessel, and buries it, uh, and, and like he's burying a seed waiting for something to happen. And how many of you know that any person who looks for quick results from seeds, you're in for a long wait? Yes? Typically, that long wait produces only darkness, invisibility, and silence. And just in case I've got anyone in the room this morning who might be in that place where things seem crazy for you, and yet you're not so sure but what it's not God speaking to you, and you're waiting on God, let me give you three 
thoughts about it. Number one, are you listening to me? There are times God will ask you to do the ridiculous so that he can show you the fantastic. Just let that ruminate for a moment. God may ask you to do the ridiculous so that he can show you the fantastic. There are just moments that God will ask you to wait or to step out and do something and it will almost look to others like irrational obedience. But I want to tell you that, the more, that more often than not, hear me, God's generals in his army throughout history seem to look like fools, utter fools before they looked like men of faith. There are no miracles without there first being a season of embarrassment. There are no miracles without, there, without first there being a season of embarrassment. I know I used the example of David Wilkerson and Teen Challenge just a couple of weeks ago, but there's no finer example of what I'm trying to present. You read about him in The Cross and the Switchblade. You know, he started the Teen Challenge program around the world. He founded Times Square Church in New York City. Back in the 1950s, God spoke to David Wilkerson, and he said, I want you to get rid of your television set. Instead of watching late-night TV, which would have been who? Jack Parr. You don't even know who Jack Parr is? Jack Benny? Johnny Carson? Okay, I need to find another crowd here. Instead of watching those guys, I want you to turn that TV watching time into prayer time. That's what God said to David Wilkerson. The story goes that everyone else looked at David, as they did on many occasions, and said, that's legalism. Oh, that's over the top. That's irrational. And David Wilkerson got rid of his TV set, and at nighttime he would pray instead of watch TV. And in one of those nights of prayer is when he had a Life magazine in front of him, and he sees the Michael Farmer trial going on in New York City for gang members in the 1950s that had beat up and killed a paraplegic in Central Park. And David Wilkerson is sitting there looking at the faces of these young gang members in a New York City courtroom in the Life magazine, and that's the moment that God speaks to him and says, that's who I want you to go talk to. And it all starts on a night where God had told him to do something that everybody else thought was crazy. So that God could do the fantastic in his life. Church, instead of you giving an hour to Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon or QVC, forgive me ladies, or any of those guys who cannot do one thing for you, Give that time to God and watch what he can do. Can I get an amen this morning from this very quiet crowd? God moved upon his heart. Because of that one moment, you heard me say it, I think, a couple of weeks ago, there are 1,100 teen challenge centers today around the world, 36,000 beds for men and women that need to be set free from drugs and addictions, all because one man took an inner, irrational step and he said, I'm going to pray instead of watch TV. You do the crazy, watch God do the fantastic. Give me an amen to that this morning. 
And what was that for Jeremiah? For Jeremiah, it was buy property when everything is desolate. While God is saying, you just watch what I can do. Number two, don't ever forget this. Put this on your list of don't ever forget. Just because it has been forgotten by man does not mean it has been forgotten by God. Oh, come on, somebody. Just because it's been forgotten by man does not mean it's been forgotten by God. Just because you've forgotten about it, just because everybody else around you has forgotten about it, doesn't mean that God has forgotten it. I certainly do not profess to have a green thumb, nor do I know the first thing about growing plants or flowers. But I remember, I had a little flashback, being a kid, somebody said something that triggered this in my mind. I remember being a kid raised in church, pastor's son, and hearing people uh, in the springtime or certain, you know, the appropriate time of the year talk about planting their garden. And, and, and then, and I would, you know, I would overhear the conversation, not really a part of it, be mildly interested in that. You know, what is that, you know, what do you do with that? And, and just interested enough that when I was at the dime store, I would walk by this di- uh, display of these packets of seeds with beautiful pictures on the front. The one that would typically get my attention the most was the sunflower because it was big and bold. And I like big and bold. How about you? But the only picture, if you notice, that they put on the packet was of a full-grown, healthy, well-cared-for plant. They didn't put pictures on there of the kind of plants that I grew. Hello? So I would, you know, every spring for a few years, I would buy a half dozen packets of seeds of whatever caught my eye. No one told me what to do with those seeds. And I certainly wasn't about to read the instructions. No real man would do that, right? I just, I I knew just enough to go out in the backyard and dig or or plow up a little square area in the backyard. And then after doing that, I I just took all those packets and I just dumped them wherever. That was my plan. And convinced myself after I'd gotten them sufficient, they looked like they'd sprinkled everywhere, I am a farmer. Yes, I am. And I would walk out every morning to look at my little square area, and I kept the packets that the seeds were in. I remember I would always do that, because I would take those packets with me and go, okay, when I go out today, it's going to look like that. And I would go out, and guess what? It didn't look like that. That's not the way it was. All I saw were weeds coming up. And the disappointment was overwhelming, and I was ready to march back to that store and say, your product does not work. You see, I wanted the picture to happen the next day. And I was clueless about the fact that there is a process that has to happen underneath the ground that nobody sees when the real growth is going on. Anybody with me this morning so far? You see, what I had decided was I had some bad seeds or fake seeds, not even the real stuff. They had sold me some bogus something until I finally figured out that, and somebody explained to me, that stuff has to happen underground, and God has a lot of work to do down there with those seeds and processing to do, and and he has to do it in a rhythm that aligns with his music, not mine. 
And all of that has to happen before that which I have envisioned and seen on my packet, on my picture, before it can start to look anything like that which I, which I, I, I had planted. And can I just say, I didn't even know sometimes in my past when I was planting seeds. I didn't know 20 years ago with songs I was teaching the church that there would be seeds that would take root in the heart of a dear lady who would get to 2018, face the darkest valley of her life, and reap the harvest of what was planted 25 years ago. That's what planting's all about. You see, what Jeremiah was being told was this. You bury that seed in an earthen vessel and you keep it safe in a safe place and I'm going to keep the promise. Because whenever, listen to me, whenever something is given to the Lord, surrendered to Him according to His leading and entrusted to Him, you just stand back and watch God show up. He will show up every time. And what seemed to be completely irrational was actually a buried promise that God was going to come through at just the right time. Buried promise, buried promise, buried promise. Some of you have a buried promise. Let me tell you my favorite buried promise. I see it every time I conduct a graveside service. Every time I drive by a cemetery. And the older the cemetery, the better. Particularly if you go to the East Coast area. they got some really old cemeteries over there. And I particularly like it when I'm in one of those other cities. And Becky and I drive by a cemetery, and there's weeds growing up all over the tombstones. And the tombstones themselves are, are kind of leaning over because the ground has shifted so much over the, the decades. Because I know that underneath those topsy-turvy tombstones is buried a promise. And that promise, let me tell you, folks, is found in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 where we read that there is coming a day when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, what Paul tells us. Every cemetery in this country is a buried promise awaiting the second coming of the Lord Jesus when God calls his people home. Listen to me. It may be forgotten by man, but it has not been forgotten by God. Can I get an amen to that this morning? All right. Finally, look back down at your Bible. I have some in the room who are going to go, you're really going to go there, Dan? I, I am. Number three, because it's in the Word. <clears throat> the creation-evolution debate comes into focus here in this expression of Jeremiah. Please do not think that the creation-evolution debate does not matter because it does. Don't think that that which is indoctrinating our children creationism versus evolution. Don't think that it doesn't matter because it is larger than we think. It's more important than we think. There's a Christian historian who may be known to some of you. He's written some amazing books on Christianity and on the history of the Jews. Some of you may know his um, writings on Winston Churchill. 
One of his books, probably considered his most intriguing, is a biography on Charles Darwin, who, as you know, is the one credited for introducing the idea of evolution and the origin of species to us. Well, this writer who wrote this biography is Paul Johnson, and he's a historian who wrote the biography on this particular biography on Darwin. Did you know, I'm not sure if everybody knows this, Darwin was studying to become a minister before he took that famous eight-month trip that he took in the year of 1835 to the Galapagos Islands, which is where his observation of the Galapagos species inspired his theory of evolution. Did you know that? Until before he did that and had that eight-month experience, he was studying for the ministry. Did you also know that Darwin married a strong Christian wife and they had a number of children? He was never particularly anti-Christian. There were always seeds of the Christian faith inside of him. According to this historian, uh, Paul Johnson, Darwin was never really out to debunk Christianity. It was just simply his own observations. But something happened with Darwin that is documented in Paul Johnson's uh, biography. When Darwin's little girl, Emma, fell sick and he started praying that she would be healed. Let me read to you from Paul Johnson's writings about Charles Darwin. Darwin wrote to Emma, he writes, and she went to her final sleep with great tranquility, most sweetly, at 12 o'clock. Oh, poor dear child. She had such a very short life, but I trust she is happy. Only God knows what miseries might have been in store for her. She expired without a sigh, and how desolate it makes one to think of her frank, cordial matter. I cannot ever remember seeing little Emma being naughty. God bless her. Paul Johnson writes, it is notable that Darwin's letter during the final phase of his daughter's life was one long prayer to God for her recovery. He mentions, Darwin mentions God 14 times in that letter. And the blow was so bad at this moment of his life when his little girl died that he never forgave God for taking his little girl away. And the cruelty he thought he saw in God blew away every last vestige of belief. And he went from that point forward with an extra intensity and vehemence to disprove that God even existed. Because of a painful situation in his life, because he just somehow could not believe this is actually what would happen, what what God would do. And then we watch that theory sweep from Europe to the United States And this thinking that tries so hard to remove God from our thinking, to remove God from our children, to remove God from anything related to science whatsoever, somehow convincing us that man is in charge, not God. To those of you who want to argue the finer points of creationism versus evolution, how long was an actual day in the book of Genesis? Was my grandfather really a monkey? Um... Um, here's what I would say. Just go ahead and knock yourself out with all that. Let me tell you, for me, I don't care how God did it. I don't care how long it took him to do it. I just know that when the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I don't have any problem believing in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I'm pretty sure you didn't create it. 
I'm quite confident I didn't create it, nor anybody else that I know. I know no one who could have done it. And here's what should be important to us, church. To lose the understanding and value of the authenticity of the Word of God in this idea of creation is to lose more than we think because you lose faith in the impossible. That's what you lose. That's what you will sacrifice. Jeremiah is clearly a creationist. And he praised the song that I referenced at the beginning of this message. Think of this with me for a moment. As the real estate deed is in the jar, probably in the ground, Jeremiah is in jail. Jerusalem is in ruins. This is not a happy time. Jerusalem is in ruins. The people of God are in Babylon, but God is still on the throne. And here's what I want everybody in this house to hear today. If God is still on the throne, then the miraculous can still happen. Bless the name of the Lord. So look down at your Bible. What Jeremiah does this. He does something that should be an example. Listen to me, to every one of us under the sound of my voice today. And that is this, when everything about your circumstances look as bad as Jeremiah did, look what Jeremiah does. He appeals to creation. And just when it seemed like all hope was gone and there was no reason to lift your head and nothing in my family has ever gone right and everything is bad. It doesn't work for us like that. It does for other that not in our house. Look at verse 16. Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch the son of Neriah, this is Jeremiah, he says, I prayed to the Lord. He's not in a good situation. Things are bad. Things are really bad. Nothing around him looks like it's ever going to be positive ever again. I prayed to the Lord saying this, Oh, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You know what he was saying, Bethesda? He was saying this, God, if you can create something out of nothing, then you are surely able to fix my situation and work the miraculous. God, if you can call stars and planets into existence when nothing exists, then you can call a marriage back into order according to your sovereign plan. God, if you can hang globes on nothing, then you can bring my son or my daughter back to you. Bless the name of the Lord. If you can simply speak a word and light comes into existence and moons and stars and sun and planets and you can simply breathe life into animals, then God, if you can do all of that, you can surely heal cancer in the name of Jesus. You can heal heart disease. You can set people free from addictions. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. It's a very simple statement. Things are bad. Everything around me is bad, but oh, Lord God, oh. I love the ah that starts the phrase. Oh, Lord God, behold. Yes, here's my circumstance. But you, you made the heavens and the earth. And if you 
can do that, then I will continue to believe in the possible. I will continue to believe that you are the God of the impossible and nothing is too hard for you. Listen to me, church. I don't believe in the Big Bang Theory. I don't. What I believe in is the Big God Theory. That's the theory I believe in. And that there's a God who made heavens, he made earth, and he can still do miracles today. Is anybody in the house with me at all? Is anybody in the house with me at all here today? If you are, then stand to your feet right now, please. Hallelujah. I want you to just lift your hands before the Lord right now and say, God, you can do anything. Come on, say it out loud. Say it out loud. God, you are the God of the impossible. There is nothing too hard for you. There is nothing too hard for you. Bethesda, I believe in creation because I believe in a God of miracles. I know that many of you, because I hear from you often, many of you have in recent days received some kind of a report that is not what you were hoping for in the least. They say that when the spies came back from looking in Canaan, Numbers 13, the Bible says they brought back a bad report. Numbers 13, verse 32 says, So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes there to live. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. And and then to him, we felt like grasshoppers, and they thought that of us also. Listen to me, church, for just a moment. Oh, Lord Jesus, my heart is reaching out to those who are suffering today, those who've received bad news, those whose faith is hanging on by a thread. When you read that report, their report that I just read, everything there is true. It's all true. But a bad report is not, a, is not bad because it's untrue. A bad report is bad because God has not been factored in that report. This report was not bad because they were lying. So don't come to me and say, yeah, I've got this bad. And all the signs are there. Not saying it's not true. That's not the issue. What's true is if it were to not be a bad report, you can't leave God out of that report. Yes, they're big. We look like grasshoppers. Yes, they're big. But guess what? God is bigger than they are. What makes a bad report bad is when you leave God out of the situation. Hear me, church, today. What makes a bad report bad is when you refuse to say those two words we say around here so often. But God. Say it with me. This is what made Jeremiah stand out head and shoulders above everybody else. He said, yeah, I'm in jail. Yeah, everybody I know and love's in Babylon. All the cool people are in Babylon. Yep. My city, my city that I love is in ruins. It's been burned to the ground. But God is still on the throne. And I want you to take that little equation and use it as a template for your situation today. Yes, it's true that I've been served with divorce papers. Yes, it's true they've said I have cancer. Yes, it's true that I'm facing bankruptcy. Yes, it, whatever. It's true this, and then in the midst of that, it's not just one thing, it's, and my family's turning against me. 
and then I have relation issues with this, and, and, and then there's this, and I've got this new pain that I can't figure, it's scaring me. But God is still on the throne, Bethesda. Whatever you plug into that template, whatever you put in there, don't stop until you say the last sentence, which is this, but God is still on the throne. Say it with me. But Come on, like you mean it. And I want you to remember this little prayer that we used to sing around here in the 80s. Oh, Lord God. Hear the pathos of that expression. Oh, Lord God. Behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth and just let your mind's eye go back to the beginning. Take it back to Genesis 1. You made heaven the earth by your power and your outstretched harm. And so therefore, I can rest in you and say, if you can do that, then nothing is too difficult for thee. Come on, one more time, lift your hands. And right now, we're going to lift our hands over your situation, whatever it is. And I want you to say out loud, Lord, nothing's too hard for you. Come on, do it. Say it again, like three times. Nothing is too hard for you, Lord. Nothing is too hard for you. Even if I'm having a hard time believing it, nothing is too hard for you. You made the heavens and the earth. Nothing's too hard for you. Come on, tell him right now. God, over my marriage, nothing is too difficult for thee. Over my sons and my daughters, nothing is too difficult for Over the, me finding a job in this city, nothing is too difficult for thee. So God, we simply pronounce that if you made the heavens and the earth, then you can work a miracle in our bodies today. God, if you made the heavens and the earth, you can bring a marriage back together. If you made the heavens and the earth, you can bring a lost son or daughter home. You can restore relationships. Hallelujah. Nothing is too difficult for thee. The womb can be barren, but God can fix it. The report says three months, but God can fix it. You're in a dark hole of depression. You don't even know how you got there. You feel like you're just walking in a dark cloud. God can fix it in Jesus' name because nothing is too difficult for him. Oh, Lord God. Oh, Lord God. You've made the heavens and the earth. So, Lord, we bless you today. And we thank you that we serve an all-powerful God in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody who receives this word today, put your hands together and bless the Lord. There is no power in hell. Great I am, the great I am, the great Come on, lift it up and a shout, hallelujah. God Almighty, the great, who is worthy, none beside thee,
Come on, one more time. The mountains, the mountains shake before him. Sing it. The mountains shake before him. At the mention of your name. There's no power. Or any who can stand before the power. The great I am, the great I am. Huh? The great I am. Hallelujah. Holy, holy God Almighty, who is worthy, none beside Thee. The great I am. The great I am. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The title of this message is Encouraged by a Song. I want you to walk out of this place with your head held high. Even if you walked in with your face downcast, like the psalmist said, why so downcast, O my soul? Hope thou in God, for yet will I praise him. So for this day, make it a day of praise. Make it a day of faith, believing that God is bigger, he's stronger, he's more powerful than anything that you are facing, and he can deliver you and let the church say amen. Amen. Greet three people on your way out. God bless you. We'll see you at prayer service tonight.